America. Um, no one's ever come close in any way to matching his 10 NCAA championships in a 12-year period. The closest anyone has come to his record seven titles in a row is four. His teams won a, a record for men's basketball, 88 consecutive games. Let me tell you, that was an amazing thing. UCLA was the team it seemed no one could beat from 1964 to 1975. It was after a record seven championships in a row that Wooden's team lost the college basketball tournament. That was 1974. The next year, they regained the national championship. And they were on the floor of the San Diego Sports Arena in 1975. He won his last NCAA title. And a team booster, who was an avid fan, if you never heard that term before, sought him out and he cried these words, great victory, John. It made up for you letting us down last year. Think about that. Seven titles in a row. No one had ever done that before, ever. They lost one year. They were in the finals. They made it all the way, but they didn't win the, the final game. The next year, they win another title. And the comment was, it made up for you letting us down last year. I don't know about you, but you think about that statement. It might have sounded like praise, <laughs> but in reality, it was terrible criticism of probably one of the greatest coaches of all time. But you know, that's the way people can be, critical of anything but perfection. Now, when I read that story, I thought, you know what's amazing? That what we read and we looked at this morning in Mark chapter 2 is that these people were critical of someone who was perfect. And, um, and we learned some valuable lessons. I hope some very challenging things, but I ask you to go back to Mark chapter 2 with me this evening. And the reason I ask you to go back there is because I would like to take one more look at the matter of criticism, but from the other perspective. Because I believe that Jesus Christ teaches us some things about dealing with critics. And if we can spend a little bit of time doing that, and then... We'll take one more look at, at the four different events that took place in Mark chapter 2. And yes, this could have been next Sunday, I know. But I want to keep moving along in the book of Mark. There are so many things to look at. But uh, this chapter has really been a blessing and yet a great challenge to me as I've looked at the individual events. Uh, quite frankly, almost wanted to preach each one of these. There are tremendous lessons for us. But uh, for the sake of being able to move along and kind of get this overall picture of a wonderful Savior, Jesus the servant, we're trying to keep looking through the, the book. But uh, it's just chapter two is so rich. So let's look at this one, the perfect one who was criticized uh, for his work. And let's learn from him, the spotless son of God, God come in the flesh, criticized by his creatures, by his creation. And in this passage, there's just a, a wonderful picture, a great picture of someone who handled his critics well. So let's pray, ask God to help us tonight to see this, and then uh, maybe four other challenges, some things to think about from Mark chapter 2. Father, thank you for uh, the chapter that you've given us, this portion of Mark that uh, is so rich, that has lessons for us to just... Uh, to revel in, to, to ponder, to, 
to think on and learn from. And I pray that uh, our time this evening, as we look this morning at critics and what they're like and we're challenged about what we ought not do and, and, and what we ought consider and look at in our own lives, Lord, help us tonight to learn from the Master, the Son of God, the perfect example for us. And may we learn from Him how to deal with and how to face critics in life. And then uh, help us to see Him one more time in this chapter and, and uh, stir us about some of the things that Jesus did. And uh, I'll thank you for what you'll, what you'll do in our hearts and lives tonight from this chapter uh, once again, and we pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to assume that you remember what we read this morning and what we looked at, and we did make reference to different portions of Mark chapter 2. But if you've slept since then, I'm sorry. Okay? If you forgot everything, I also am very sorry that you did. But I would like to look at this other aspect because Jesus does teach us a number of things about the critics who constantly, uh, if you would, were attacking him for various things in his life and things that there was nothing at all wrong with. Now, I think we need to begin by saying this. It's interesting to observe in this chapter how Jesus dealt with critics at this point in his ministry. Remember, this is kind of at the forefront, at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, about three years where Jesus Christ is ministering and preaching the word and going about from city to city and having a ministry in the lives of people. And we're at the beginning of that. Now, toward the end, it wasn't that Jesus was tiring of people. It's that Jesus had been teaching them and proving over and over and over he was the Son of God. And he dealt very severely with some of his critics later on in ministry like when they were criticizing him and they were trying to get him tripped up when they brought the woman taken in adultery or when they brought or when they said, you know, should we get paid tribute to Caesar and other things like that. And Jesus did very forcefully and sometimes very powerfully dealt with those who criticized him later in ministry. But here at the beginning, he does remind us of something. Look, everyone has questions in life that need to be answered. The first 12 verses, we made mention of it this morning. This wasn't necessarily an evil uh, as far as the fact that it was going on in their mind and they were sitting there and they were criticizing them, him in mind and they weren't willing to say anything outwardly or get answers to that is wrong. But the fact that they had, a, if you would, a criticism or a question of Jesus was not sinful in and of itself. Do you know that John wrote in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, try the spirits? There is a sense in which a Christian, in some ways, at sometimes, needs to be critical of things, needs to take a critical look at things. It's not always sinful to make, if you would, correct, uh, take a correct look at ministry, ministries and sometimes be critical of them when there are things that are inconsistent or wrong or sinful in those ministries. God doesn't condemn that. In fact, the very what Jesus did in Mark chapter 2 proves that fact. And you say, what do you mean by that? Do you realize that all, every time he was criticized, he answered his critics? Jesus never said, you're wrong. He answered the critics. Actually, they were wrong every time. But he didn't. Uh, in fact, we'll mention a couple of things about that in just a moment. 
but the fact of making criticisms in life and, and being, if you would, critical, observing things critically and carefully is not necessarily sinful in itself. It does become sinful when you have the answers that have been given to you clearly and you keep criticizing. It is wrong when you criticize things that are not, are not sinful or not wrong, as happened a number of times here. But it is intriguing to me to see that every time Jesus was criticized, he answered. Uh, the, this man uh, in Capernaum named, named Jesus in Mark chapter 2 was claiming to be someone that any thinking Jew would have questioned, and, and the Jews should rightfully have done that because anyone could come along. In fact, people did come along and claim to be the Messiah. Do you know that? Numerous people since the time of Christ, before the time of Christ, came claiming to be the Messiah, someone special. And Jesus indeed needed to prove that he was the Son of God. Now, he did in Mark 2, and he did in many other places and throughout his life and ministry. Nicodemus had questions for Jesus in John chapter 3. But Nicodemus came not with an attitude saying, ha, who are you? But he said, no one can do what you've done unless he be of God. There, is some, there was some, well, who are you and what have you done? And Jesus took time to answer him. Any honest seeker who came with questions, Jesus took time to answer. And even a number that didn't. Jesus took time to answer. So let's remember that. Uh, it's also important to remember this. Criticism will come. It's part of life. You will have critics. Uh, in fact, someone that said this, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Because that's about the only way to live life without being criticized. And then guess what? You'll be criticized for saying nothing, being nothing, and doing nothing. It really doesn't matter. You're going to have critics in life. And, by the way, that means you need to have a thick skin. Get over it, you know? All right, look, people are going to be unhappy with the decisions that you make sometimes in life. What is important when you're criticized uh, is, is to do right. To look at it honestly. To take the criticism. To hear it out. To, uh, to ask God to help you to see maybe some things that might need to change in your life. Or to help, or, or ask the Lord to help you to see where you, if where you stand is correct, and then uh, stand firm there. In fact, I'll tell you why. Here are some reasons why you might have critics. I'm not going to take. We're not. I know. Just want to share a few things. The first might be because you're doing something sinful. Was wasn't the case for Jesus Christ, but for us, sometimes we're criticized because we're doing something we shouldn't be doing, and if that's the case, we need to repent. We need to get it right and move forward and live for God. Another reason we might is jealousy. Human nature leads us to be jealous of people. You look in chapter 3. We didn't read it this morning. But here's a man who did a good deed on the Sabbath day and healed a man. And the people sought to kill him after that. It's like, come on, seriously? So sometimes when you do right and jealousy, human nature leads us to be jealous of people who are doing what they said cannot be done or when someone's more popular than they are. Sometimes criticism comes our way because people have their own standard of right and wrong. And that goes back to our passage. Remember the last story? 
and here's our standard of, of right and wrong. And then fourth, sometimes it comes because we're doing something good and right, and people don't like it. I know this is really hard to understand, but, uh, but sometimes people can be doing the exactly right thing and still be totally criticized for it. Can, can I say this? There are a lot of people who, um, and maybe I shouldn't bring up that, there are a lot of people um, taking a stand different than the government on what's going on in regards to the health of people and, and vac vaccines and other things like that that are criticized when in reality, in many cases, they're just trying to, to share with folks facts and information that has been observed and they have actually, uh, they have proved in many ways are true um, and yet have been rejected. And, and by the way, I can't, I've come very close at times to dealing with that subject. <laughs> Maybe we will some other time. But this evening, that's another thing on the list, Brother Deal, so I'll put it there. You need a computer probably for the list of things now. Someone is asking me how long it'd take to preach through all the things I said. I'll deal with that someday. And I don't know, someday I'll figure that out. Okay. <laughs> so let me just share with some things about how Jesus dealt with them. First thing is, and this is, a, this is an amazing testament to who Jesus is, he was patient with them. Look, these, these questions really were silly. Okay, I used the word I wasn't supposed to use this morning, dumb. But they were, they were silly questions. They were foolish questions. You know, why are you doing that which is unlawful? It wasn't, and they couldn't, they, could, they couldn't cite any scripture because there wasn't any scripture for where they stood and what they believed. And since they couldn't, it was a silly question. You know, why don't your disciples fast? Silly question. And none of their business, as we shared. And it really wasn't. And yet, Jesus, each time, answered them. He was patient. And his answers were, were extremely kind. I, I don't know about you, but I, I could think of a lot better ways to answer it, personally. But my ways in answering it wouldn't have been nice. Yeah, like, mind your own business. There you go. The statement that, uh, that really isn't. Maybe it wouldn't be appropriate at all. And Jesus was patient. Each one of the answers Jesus gave was, was actually, in some cases, just explaining, hey, look, this is where I'm at. This is who I am, and this is why I can do what I've, I've done. And so Jesus was patient with them. Um, so second thing that uh, I, I wanted to note from this passage as well, Jesus wasn't condescending or unkind. Not only was he patient in his answers, but, and this is hard when, with critics. You know, sometimes you can get really, really, you can, you can be nasty, condescending. And Jesus could have been, couldn't he? Ha, I came up with the idea of the Sabbath. Who are you to decide what's right? I mean, we could have thought of a lot of answers that would have been condescending and would have put people in their place. Rightfully so. But Jesus Christ in his answer didn't treat them like three, the three-year-olds they were acting like. He treated them like adults who, who needed answers and needed help. He wasn't. He didn't berate them. He didn't belittle them. His words were direct, but they were gracious. In fact, the Bible tells us about Jesus' words that he was, that he was full of grace and truth. 
and that description of him explains and is explained very clearly in Mark chapter 2 when four different times, one right after another, in very close proximity with one another, he is criticized by those who had no business criticizing him and who he was. And yet Jesus was not condescending. He wasn't unkind. He dealt with it. Third thing that I note from this passage is Jesus explained his position. And what I mean, what, what I wanted to share with you is sometimes we push critics away. As, well, they're just critics. And so they're just, they're, just trying to, they're just trying to hurt the work. They're just trying to hurt me. And sometimes we push them away and we refuse to answer them. And there's a time when you don't. You know, Jesus said this. Jesus said at one point, look, if you answer this question, the baptism of John, where was it from? If you answer that question, then I'll answer your question. That's pretty, that, that, was, that was pretty loaded, the way it was said, okay? And uh, he was actually trying to deal with people who were trying to trip him up and trying to ruin his ministry and effectiveness. But in this passage, Jesus, in these four different times, explained his position, and he explained why he did what he was doing and what was right about his actions, and we can learn from him. And there are times we ought to do that. The last point to be made, and maybe and not the last one that we could make, but from the answers that Jesus gave, he didn't back down. He didn't back down. Now, um, there's another step that I just want to mention, and it's this. Every human being other than Jesus Christ needs to evaluate when criticism is made. Because the truth is, we're not perfect like the Son of God was and is. And so when someone criticizes, we can get mad at it, we can get frustrated with them, we can justify ourselves, we can stand up for our rights, we can berate people, okay? But those are not the right ways to respond to criticism. When someone doesn't agree with our stand, when someone doesn't agree with the things that we do, okay? Uh, by the way, the answer is not compromise either. The answer at times is, here's where I stand, here's why I stand there. I appreciate your questions, I appreciate your, 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 you have the right to criticize as you want, here's why I'm doing what I do, and there are times where you might, must say, and I'm going to continue doing it because it's right. And that's the way Jesus Christ was. He didn't back down. Um, think about this. Jesus could have pacified the crowd by saying, you know, the disciples haven't been fasting, but they're going to start now. By the way, you know, there's, there's some that would have done that. Well, let's just not make the people unhappy. You know, they're criticizing, and, and what's the big deal? If they fast, good. Fasting's good. Helps you lose weight. By the way, if that's the, way you're, that's the reason you're fasting, I, if you're doing it because you're trying to lose weight, fine, but don't call it spiritual, okay? But if you're fasting to get hold of the throne of God and talk to God, then, then do that. All right, well, that's another story for another time. <laughs> Thank you very much. But here's Jesus Christ, and, and Jesus Christ was right, and, yet, and he didn't back down. He didn't change his ways. He stood for that which is right, and he kept doing that which is right. So, verses 23 to 28, they criticize him about the Sabbath. 
And Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The very next chapter, a short time later, here he is in chapter 3. He enters again into the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. So what did Jesus do? You know, he, he could have just said, well, this caused so much trouble. I got so much flack over the disciples eating, eating corn on the Sabbath day. Why bother? But there was a man who had a need. And Jesus didn't back down from doing what's right. You know, um, we need real discernment from God when you get criticized about whether we're right. But if we are, then we need to keep doing right. Look, I know it sounds sometimes, I know that when I preach, sometimes it sounds like we're condemning the entire world, we're the only ones that are right. But I will say this, there is only one way of salvation. There's a time we need to stand up and say, this is right and these are wrong. And there's a time when you just shouldn't compromise that which is right, no matter what people criticize, no matter what people say. And Jesus Christ is a tremendous example. He didn't back down when falsely criticized for wrongdoing. He explained, he was patient, he continued to do what was right in spite of the opposition. And I love what happened in chapter 3. Because he said unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he said unto him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Isn't that, here they are, here are the critics. They're just looking for something. And they could have said, yes, it is, it's wrong. No, they're not saying anything. You know why? They just, they wanted him to do it. And when he looked round about on them with anger, and here's why he was angered. A righteous indignation. He was grieved for what? Hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, and, and this is, is wonderful, because he didn't do any work. Well, he did, but he didn't. Stretch forth now thy hand. You know, he didn't take the hand and do something. Just stretch forth your hand. Can you imagine what that must have been like? This guy stretches his hand out and that withered hand is healed. Must have been just an amazing thing. His hand was restored whole as the other. I mean, it's like, whoa! Had to be the right hand because I'm left-handed, so you got to understand. Um, might have been the other way around. Don't know. Don't, not told which one. Doesn't matter. Pharisees went forth straightway, took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus did what was right. Um, so, look, how do you handle the irritations of life, the criticisms of life, the people who say things about you that you don't appreciate and that you don't, don't agree with? Jesus gives us a great lesson uh, to follow and to learn from. There was once an oyster whose story I tell who found that sand had gotten under his shell. Just one little grain, but it gave him much pain. For oysters have feelings, although they're so plain. Now, did he berate the working of fate, which had led him to such a deplorable state? Uh, did he spend endless hours in self-pitying reflection? Did he curse out the government, call for an election? 
No, as he lay on the shelf, he said to himself, if I cannot remove it, I'll improve it. So the years rolled by as the years always do, and he came to his ultimate destiny, oyster stew. And this small grain of sand, which had bothered him so, was a beautiful pearl all richly aglow. Now this tale has a moral, for isn't it grand what an oyster can do with a morsel of sand? What couldn't we do if we'd only begin with all the things that get under our skin? How do you deal with the irritants of life, whether they be people or situations? A great lesson to learn. Now I'd like to share with you and conclude the message from this morning with the contemplations or the challenges. As I come to Mark chapter 2, in each one of these stories, um, I was challenged by something different. That's why I said I wanted to preach four different messages. I actually wanted to preach many more than that. So let me share with you four messages in 15 minutes. Um, First, I'd like to share with you a principle. I preached on Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 last week, and I preached on it this morning, and I brought it up this evening. And I'm going to preach one more message because there's one verse we made mention of, but I didn't really preach about. And I want you to just note verse 12. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all. It's after he was healed. Insomuch that they were all amazed. And what happened? They glorified God. Here's the principle. Here's the lesson at least one of many that God challenged me about in this, in this chapter. Here's the principle. I exist to bring glory to God. It may seem like we've said all we can about this first story, but ver- the words of verse 12 jumped out as I read because it says they glorify God. Think about that. If a miraculous work were done today, if I had the ability to heal someone, do something miraculous like was done in that day. There was so much, I know there's the divine healers, and so don't get off on that subject, would you please? Because that's another message for another time. All right? But uh, if a miraculous work were done today, the man were really healed like this story, what do you suppose would have been the result? Healer would have been on the evening news. Wow! Look at what was done! The person would have been praised. In fact, he'd be a hero because everyone's a hero. At least today, it seems like everyone's being made a hero for whatever. I mean, you know, you work in a grocery store. You're a hero now because you work through COVID. Okay, heroes. That is another message for another time. But it's uh, interesting when Jesus does this amazing miracle, we read in our text that people glorify God. Now, ponder that. Why did they glorify God? In most cases, if something like that were done, you know, when Peter, I'm sorry, when Paul and, is it Paul and Barnabas or Paul and, Paul and Silas? Uh-oh. It was Paul and Silas healed one man, the whole city came together and they were going to worship them. They were, Paul was uh, 
Jupiter, and yeah, okay. So they were going to praise the men. And it's not because necessarily Paul and, and was it Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas? You're going to help me. I just, read the, I just read it the other day, and I can't remember now which one it was. It doesn't, doesn't matter all that much, okay? It's not all that important to the story. But here's the, here's the point. Men, praise men. There was something about Jesus Christ that when he did something miraculous, the attention went to the Father. He proved he was God, but the attention went to the Father. And there, it was greatly challenging to me to think about someone who could do a miracle like that and people didn't say, Jesus, you're wonderful, although they did many times, ultimately because he was wonderful. No one had ever done anything like that before. But in this story, it just pointed to, here's a guy who does a miraculous work, and people thought, the Father needs to be glorified for this. And the challenge is to do exactly what Jesus taught. And in fact, he epitomizes here in this passage. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, do all to the glory of God. Look, we are here and we exist for this reason, to draw, to point people to Jesus Christ, to God. I exist to glorify God. He patterned it. Uh, it was interesting. I did a quick study. I didn't have a lot of time for this. And, uh, and again, it could have been made into a message without a doubt. Because you look through numerous times in the Gospels and you'll see that Jesus glorified the Father especially in the book of John. Look up the word glorified in the Gospels, and you will find numerous times the Father was glorified, the Father was glorified, the Father was glorified, because that's what his life was about. It wasn't about magnifying himself. It was about doing the will of the Father. And, every, and, and, and in most every case, he proved he was God, but as well his attention was, and he pointed people to the Father. And so I exist to bring glory to God, first truth. Uh, as a teenager, Richard Foster spent a summer among the Eskimo people uh, in Alaska. He went to Alaska on an adventure of helping to build the first high school above the Arctic Circle. At least that's what he went for. The work was far from an adventure. It was hard. It was backbreaking. One day he was trying to dig a trench for a sewer line, which was no easy task in Alaska. Let me tell you, it's no easy task anywhere, but it's no easy task in Tennessee either because all the clay. But it was no easy task in Alaska. And, uh, and an Eskimo Christian man came by and was watching him for a while. After some time passed, the man spoke simply and profoundly. He said, you're digging a ditch to the glory of God. And Richard, a Christian himself, um, was, uh, was struck by the words that the man said. Beyond his Eskimo friend who was observing, no human being knew or even cared he was digging a ditch well or poorly. The ditch was going to be covered. No one would ever know this guy dug a hole in Alaska. But he said, uh, because of that man's words, I dug with all my might for every shovel full of dirt was a prayer to God that he would indeed be glorified by what he was doing. Jesus taught that himself. And may we live the very same way. That's challenge number one, a principle. Challenge number two, a purpose, a purpose. Look in verse 17. And again, I see Jesus Christ 
He could have been doing so many things. But what was his focus in Mark chapter 1? In Mark chapter 2, we come to verse 17 and we see what his focus was. He says, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's my purpose. I exist to turn others to God. So we have a principle. I exist to bring glory to God. A purpose. I exist to turn others to God. Jesus said to Peter back in Mark chapter 1, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Is it any wonder that Jesus is found eating with sinners, calling sinners, accused of being a friend of sinners? He spent time with sinners because they needed what he had to offer. Um, in Jesus' example, let me tell you, we're challenged to be fishers of men. Could have, would have been a good message for last week as we had missionaries with us, but the truth is it's a good message any week. When Jesus sat with sinners, it wasn't to participate in their activities. It wasn't to go to the places they went to let them know he was just like them. It was to lift them out of darkness to his marvelous light. Can I say this? This is intensely convicting to me. Many Christians seem to spend time with the world because they're like the world. And as such, they have no influence on the world. Because they've lost sight of the fact, fact that God called them to help people come out from darkness into light. When Jesus was with the world, he was separate from it but he sought to help people bring them out of darkness. And so his time spent with sinners was to win them. Now, here's another thought. And, and I've asked this question. Has it, the thought ever occurred to any in the evangelical movement that having a church that appeals to sinners by making them comfortable, by not mentioning sin, by using the devil's music with decent words is an instance teaching sinners they have no need. Jesus never compromised. And when Jesus spent time with sinners, it wasn't to make them comfortable in their sin. He spent time seeking to turn them from their sin. So that Zacchaeus knew exactly what his spiritual condition was after spending time with Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm going to give back anyone I've stolen from fourfold. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and Jesus said, this day is salvation come to this household. Because, listen, Jesus spent time with sinners. And it's also challenging to me because, because today, in Christianity, we've almost made uh, the, by the way, the church, the church is, if you would, a pleasant escape from the world to be around God's people and to be challenged from the word of God and be encouraged and urged on so that we can go forward and live for God. So there's a sense in which the church is supposed to be that. But there's also a sense in which as Christians, if we have nothing to do with the world, we will never win the world. If we're never around the world, we can't win people to Christ. 
And Jesus had a perfect, pictured perfectly what my life is supposed to be about, a purpose. I exist to turn others to God. A practice, number three. My actions ought to have a reason. In verses 19 and 20, we've get this, we, we have the fasting situation, and Jesus explains the reason why he, he, they weren't fasting. But when the disciples of John came to Jesus asking why his disciples did not fast, Jesus' answer asserted he was God. But there's something that we could miss. After saying his disciples had no need to fast because the bridegroom was with them, uh, God was with them, fasting had no purpose, what did he say in verse 20? Did he say, fasting's gone! That's a waste of time! No, because fasting isn't a waste of time. What did he say? Okay, now is not the time, because I'm here. Hey, you don't have to ask something of God. You don't have to fast to ask something of God. You can come right now. The, the bridegroom is here. Um, but there will come a time when you need to do that. Um, the Pharisees did many things just for the sake of doing them. Do you remember when the Pharisee prayed, we made mention of him? We made mention of him this morning, you know that? Wow, that was bad. What did he say in his prayer? I thank you, I'm not as the other man. What was some of the things he said? What did he say about fasting? Okay, I fast twice in a week. Two days in a week, the Pharisees fasted. Why? Because they were told to do that. It, it was show. And there is a lesson in it for us that what we do as Christians ought to have a reason, ought to have a purpose, and have a goal. I, I was kidding about the fact if you're you know, it, that fasting, fasting works for it, and dieting. But I wasn't kidding in the sense that if you're going to fast and you're going to proclaim that it's something spiritual, that it shouldn't have anything to do with losing weight. shouldn't have anything to do with cleansing. It should have everything to do with getting along with God. That what you do in life should have purpose. And there's a, just a, a great challenge for believers to do what you do in life with a purpose. Have a reason that's based upon the truth of Scripture and understand the need for it and do it because it's, it's right. Last principle, a perspective. Look in verse 27. Jesus is answering the, the cornfields on the Sabbath day issue. Okay, and we come to this, and Jesus made a, a, verse 28 is a powerful statement, I know, but verse 27 is very interesting. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. There was a great lesson. There really was a great lesson in the statement that he made. Now, besides claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, then I have the right to determine and to tell you this is improper 
scriptural understanding of how the Sabbath is supposed to be spent. And that statement is a little bit separate, and it is separate from verse 27. His point was this. Hey, look, there is no reason to make all these rules and laws and regulations that are not found in the Bible because the Sabbath wasn't, was, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man's benefit. So the perspective is this. God's commands are for my benefit. And I thought to myself this week, how many times do I look at God's commands as a benefit for me? Or how many times do I look at God's commands as some drudgery that I have to do because, well, I'm a Christian and God tells me I'm supposed to do? That's how the Pharisees lived their life, how they lived the Sabbath. That's how the, the scribes lived the Sabbath. That's how the Sadducees lived the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a bunch of rules and regulations that they had to do in order to please God. And God said, I gave you the Sabbath for your benefit. Um, so think about this. What was the point? When God makes rules, he doesn't make them for rules' sake. He makes them for the benefit of men. You know why you're not supposed to commit adultery? Not because God said don't commit adultery, but because moral purity and having a right moral standard is best for you. Because when you get involved in immorality, you hurt yourself, you sin against yourself. 1 Corinthians 6 brings out that fact. God, in so many places in the Bible, says, look, I have done this for your benefit. So look at God's commands that way. And, and maybe we need to change our perspective. Jesus was not saying the Sabbath is unimportant, but God gave the Sabbath to benefit men. When we honor the day, we shouldn't see it as a rule to follow, but a blessing to be observed. And the Pharisees made it something else. The Sabbath, they made a rule to restrict, and God intended it to be a benefit to bless. How do you view God's commands? It's our nature, our sinful nature, to see commands as dreaded things we must do rather than, rather than beneficial things we get to do for our good. Uh, you know what the benefit of the Sabbath was? It gave men a day of rest. It gave man an opportunity in the stress of life to seek God and find refreshment in him. Now, uh, it gave man an opportunity to learn man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The Sabbath was given to man for a benefit, not to make him miserable. Now, say this, the Lord's day is not the Sabbath. Christian is no longer under law, but under grace. We know all the arguments. The purpose is not to discuss this matter today, because that's not the point of this passage and what Jesus said. But we do need to call out the point that God called for a day of rest because man needs rest and because man needs to think about God. And you should have a day in your week where you rest and think about God. And let me just say this. To a lot of people, Sunday is no longer that. But it should be. It's not about my being able to get this done today and that done today and this done today. God designed a day of rest. He took a day of rest. He didn't need to rest. He gave it as an example to say, you need rest, you need me. So take a day and give it to God. And I challenge you as a Christian, 
not to look at Sunday, the Lord's Day, as the Sabbath, but to look at it as a day that God has given you to rest that you need and a day that God has given you to focus on him. Because man doesn't live by bread alone. And the food you get and the attitude you have about being in church, and you're here tonight, I know, so this is, I'm preaching to the choir, as they say. But the truth of the matter is, we just need to have this attitude and understand God gave me this day. And uh, we can get all involved and entangled in all sorts of things, and we just need to give God a day. Not because God deserves a day, although he does, but because you and I need a day with God every week. How do you view God's command? As a benefit, as a blessing, or as rules? Anyone challenged by that? So, there you have four more messages from Mark chapter 2, and I want to urge you to just read through the chapter this week and think about some of these things and, um, and ask God maybe to help sharpen your focus because so much value in this chapter about be either being a critic or learning from the one who handled the critics or just different principles from the life of Jesus that teach us about uh, in, in, these, in these stories about life and what God wants from us. And God would have for us. Let's bow in a word of prayer and close the service.